Well, we continue. This is the last study in Ruth. And I want to ask, uh, in your Bible reading, in your Bible reading, when you come to genealogies, honestly, what do you do? What do you do? I hear some chuckles, right? Because most of us, we skip them. But some of us who feel just a little bit more superior or spiritual, we'll skim a few names that we can't even pronounce. Because why? Because we get to that and we go, man, they just don't give us the spiritual goosebumps, do they? I mean, they're not, it's not, it doesn't seem very exciting. So the question is, why does a book of Ruth end with a genealogy? Why not a wedding scene or the celebration of Obed, the son? You know, after all that's gone on in the story, this type of ending would seemingly fit, right? You know, Boaz and Ruth, they marry and they live happily ever after. I mean, that would be a good ending. Well, from one perspective, yes. But it would only be a good ending if you see this merely as a human love story. Now, it is a human love story, no doubt. But is it just that? What if it's a story that includes Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, but is ultimately not about them, all right, but about what God is doing? What if it's a story of God's unfolding redemptive purpose in bringing a king? And the way that he's fulfilling his purpose is by including this ordinary family. All right, this ordinary family, you know, that is making decisions, good and bad decisions. They're trying to survive famine, you know, and overcome poverty and overcome grief, you know, making risky plans amidst bitter realities. God is including all that in his redemptive purpose. In other words, perhaps this is a story that is not that this ordinary family finds that their story is not isolated from or disconnected from God's larger redemptive kingdom story. There is a story within God's larger story. And it's a story of his kingdom. It's a story of his grace that ultimately is not about them, the way it includes them. But immediately in this context of Ruth, it's about King David coming But beyond King David, it points us to Jesus the King. And that's why I suggest to you that this genealogy, that's what a genealogy helps us to understand, the connectedness of their story to the King's story, the greater King, Jesus. And and you say, well, does this matter? Well, of course it does. It matters. If your life is filled with complicated, sinful, hurtful, hard realities, because if you understand that your story is connected to his larger story, then, then you understand that what's happening in your life has this greater purpose. There's something greater than just your harsh reality. He, God, is weaving together all that you're going through with his sovereign wisdom. He's hooking your story, so to speak, into his redemptive tapestry. This is what keeps you and me from despairing when life is hard. You see, because when you understand your story connected to his story, and you know that his story has a wonderful ending, you know what that means? If you know the end of that story, his story Tomorrow, that means today you can endure. That's what gives us hope, people of God. So as we look at the rest of this Ruth story, let's see how God makes this clear, you know, this intertwining of the two stories, if you will. He does so in two ways. I'll point out two ways. God's preoccupation with our care and God's friendship with sinners. 
So first of all, God's preoccupation with our care. We see this in verses 11 to 17. So after Boaz agrees you know, to, to redeem Naomi and Ruth and marry Ruth, we find in verse 11 that the people and the witnesses and the elders of the gate, the city gate, pronounce a blessing on them. And they pray that Ruth would be fruitful like Rachel and Leah. Now, Rachel and Leah are Jacob's wives, you know, through whom, along with their maids, uh, came the 12 sons and eventually the 12 tribes, the people of Israel. I mean, that's, that's a lot of descendants. And then they also pray that Boaz would be renowned and that his house would be like that of Perez, an ancestor through whom God raised up many descendants for the tribe of Judah. See, so these people are praying for fruitfulness. And in verse 13, what do we see? That Boaz and Ruth have a son, which is rather significant because many scholars believe that Ruth was probably barren and she could not bear a child. Remember, she was previously married to Malon and they had no children. So God intervenes wonderfully. But the, the camera, the biblical camera shifts so that the gaze is set on Naomi. And so in verse 14, the town's women, the town women, they praise Yahweh and they pray a blessing now for Naomi. Here, you got to imagine this, Naomi, this older lady, she's holding baby Obed on her lap. And she has, in effect, in him a son, though he's her grandson, of course. But this one will restore, the text says, will restore her life. That word restore, we encountered in chapter 1. It's the same verb that gets, gets translated as return, turn back, go back to, repent, right? And so she, through this son, will have her life brought back to her, restored, because Elimelech's name and inheritance are preserved through this son. But also this son will be her nourisher. All right. He will provide food and sustain her in her old age. But these town women say something even more intriguing, I find. They say to her, you know, Naomi, Ruth loves you. And she is better than seven sons. Now, that's just amazing because in that culture, sons were preferred to daughters. Sorry, ladies. That's just the reality. And seven sons was the ideal number of sons. So to say that Ruth was better than seven sons was the ultimate tribute and so here's Naomi. You have to picture her. She has, you know, this grandchild on her lap. She becomes his nurse. And her hands are full now. They're filled with this son. And she's experiencing the fullness of God's care. She is deeply satisfied. Do you see? If you look at the, and remember the whole story of Ruth. That she, Naomi, has gone from being empty to being full. But how did this happen? It was because Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant God, was preoccupied in caring for Naomi. Now, let me ask you this. You know what it means to be preoccupied? Now, we use that word in many different ways, but let me, let me tell you what I mean by that. Now, years ago, I was part of an evangelistic uh, effort in, the, in a small town in Spain. In the evenings, we'd go out and we'd share the gospel with people we would meet. But during the day, during the morning, we would have training and Bible study. And on one occasion, the director, Juan, he was giving us a lecture, a chat. And, uh, and you know, it's a, 30, about a group of 30 of us, and we're supposedly 
trying to listen. But the problem was on that day, there was just a huge amount of flies. For some reason, you know, there were flies all over the place. And there was one particular fly that was really pesky and was just flying around Juan's head in front of his face. And occasionally Juan would swat at the fly, but the fly just kept on bothering him. And here's 30 of us. We're supposed to be watching and listening to Juan, but we're not. We are focused on the fly. When the fly goes up, we watch the fly. When the fly goes that way, we watch the fly. When the fly goes around and down, we're watching the fly. We are preoccupied with the fly. And as we're watching the fly, all of a sudden, you know, as, as Juan is talking, that fly goes right into his mouth. And all of us there just kind of go, oops. He closes his mouth and he swallows. And he says, Que rico! How delicious! We just cracked up. We weren't focused on what he was saying. We were preoccupied with the fly. Do you understand that God was preoccupied? He was focused on Naomi. And we see this traced out through the story. Let me, let's rehearse that for a moment. Okay, In chapter 1, remember, there was a famine. And so Naomi and her family, they emigrate and they go to Moab. But there in Moab, she suffers the loss of her husband and her two sons. So here's this widow. She's grieving deeply. She's hurting. She's, she faces poverty and destitution. But at the end of the chapter, if you recall, she returns to Bethlehem. And who meets her when she goes back to Bethlehem? A group of women. A group of women also who speak to her. And Naomi says to this group of women, you know, she tells them about her bitter experiences. And she says to them, the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, let's shift to chapter 2. Okay, the focus so seemingly, at least at the beginning, is on Ruth. She's gleaning all day. But at the end of the chapter, how does it end? It ends with the focus once again on Naomi. And she receives from Ruth a doggy bag of leftover lunch, if you recall, about 30 pounds of barley, and the hopeful news that the field where Ruth was working was a relative's field, Boaz's field. Notice how God begins to fill Naomi. And in chapter 3, Ruth is at the threshing floor, and she's proposing marriage to Boaz. But that's not how it ends. Remember how it ends? She goes back. Ruth goes back, and the camera shifts right back to Naomi. And she receives, through, uh, through Ruth, but from Boaz, six measures of barley. And now some scholars believe that's like 80 pounds. So this is a girl from Iowa, you know, from the Midwest, carrying 80 pounds of barley to her mother-in-law. And Boaz says to her, to Ruth, he says, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. So that's how chapter 3 ends. And then we come to chapter 4. So Boaz is with Mr. So-and-so at the city gate, and they're dealing with the redemption issue and process. But that's not where it ends. No. No, it ends once again. Right before we get to the genealogy, it ends with Naomi holding baby Obed, and her heart is full. And for those of you who are grandparents, you understand that. The fullness and the satisfaction. See, God keeps coming back to Naomi. All this to suggest that God all along has been preoccupied with Naomi's care. She has never been absent from the Lord's mind. Never forgotten. Always the focus of his attention. He's simply not going to let her go. He's the one who takes her from emptiness to fullness. 
Now stand back for a moment. Stand back for a moment. We, the readers of this story, we, can, we understand that God's kindness to her was because her story was connected to God's story. Right? Because the baby that she held in her arms, although unbeknownst to her, would be the father of Jesse, who would in turn be the father of David the king. King David, who would offer a secure place for Israel amidst the anarchy of the period of Judges. Remember, Ruth comes right after Judges. She couldn't see that, but our caring God could see that. You know, you and I, we don't always see. We're not always aware of what our caring God is doing. But I want you to hear this, that if you are in Christ Jesus, and if you can know that your story, your life is connected to His redemptive kingdom story. See, what this does is gives you hope, my dear friends. You can know that His eye is always on you. He's preoccupied for, with caring for you. There is not a moment in your life in which he is not caring for you. When Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 7, he tells us, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 3 to 6. No, he doesn't. No, it's not limited. It's not restricted. No, he always cares for you. You may not always see it. You may not always feel it, but it's a reality. See, our Father cares for his bruised and broken lambs. He cares for his empty and destitute people. That's why in the midst of your hardship, when you say, I just feel so empty, please don't say, it's over, I'm done. You know why I ask you not to say that? Because God is not done with you. You want to stay in chapter 1, feeling all the bereavement and all the grief and all, and all the bitterness, and God says, no, there's a chapter 4 that's coming, and I will fill you. You look forward to that chapter 4 in your life it's coming because a king will bring it to pass and when you doubt that my dear friends look to the cross once again where you see the love and the care of your God demonstrated gloriously for you because the one that King David foreshadows Jesus the king he became poor he was stripped naked he was emptied so that you and I could be filled and find rest and contentment with that son, the king. Find contentment, find rest and hope as you look to the cross, but also look to him who is the resurrected, ascended, and exalted Lord, as Peter tells us in Acts. He is Christ. He is the King. He is the Lord. He is the King of kings. And that means as the exalted Lord on His throne, He has all authority and power, and there is nothing that will impede His caring for you and for me. That's where Naomi takes us. What a loving and gracious God. And so this takes us to the second point of God's friendship with sinners. And here we look at the genealogy in verses 18 to 22. And in this genealogy, which is centers really around Boaz, all right, more or less, we're invited to see how his story is connected to a dubious, checkered past, but also a glorious future. And this genealogy covers about 700 years, roughly about 1700 to 1000 B.C., and what the writer of Ruth does, he starts with Perez. He could have gone back farther, but he, no, he starts with Perez, uh, who's already mentioned in Verse 12, uh, by the people at the, at the gate. 
Now, the Pettis story uh, is found in Genesis 38. And what's interesting, this afternoon I urge you to read it, uh, it tells us, it gives us some similar similarities, very interesting similarities between uh, his story and the Ruth story. Let me summarize it for you this way. You've got to go back uh, to, to Genesis and think about Judah. Judah was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Now, he marries all right, uh, a non-Jewish Canaanite you know, woman by the name of Shua. And they have three sons, the oldest of which is Er. Now, Er mar- marries Tamar. All right? Now, uh, the problem is Er does evil in God's sight. God eliminates him, and he dies without leaving any children. So, what do they do? They follow the Leveret marriage custom. And so, Er's brother has to be called upon to marry Tamar. Now, and it, that brother is Onan, but Onan's not crazy about this idea. So he ensures that no seed is raised up for Er, and he acts wickedly also in God's eyes, and God puts him to death. Now, there's another son by the name of Shelah. Now, who should have been given to Tamar as a husband to raise up a seed uh, for the family? But Judah refuses to do so. He says, uh-uh, I am not going to give to this black widow, Tamar, another son of mine, so that he could die. Not, so that's where that is. But then sometime later, uh, Tamar devises a plan. She finds out that Judah is coming to her town. Now, Judah's wife at that point in the story has died. So she, what she does, what Tamar does, is that she disguises herself as a temple prostitute um, and when Judah sees her, he thinks he's seen a temple prostitute. He doesn't recognize that she's his daughter-in-law. And she goes in, he goes into her, and the child born from that union, that illicit union, is Bedez. That's Boaz's past. That's his ancestry. And, and depending on if there are gaps in the genealogy, all right, it could be that Bedez, the child of this illegitimate union is the great, 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 great grandfather of Boaz. Now, that's one end of the genealogy. You go to the other end of the genealogy, and we see that Boaz and Ruth are King David's great-grandparents. So he's their great-grandson. So from a dubious past to a hopeful future. But you know what doesn't? You know, we know the rest of the story. It doesn't end simply with King David because he is not the stellar king either, right? We know the rest of the story and we know that King David points us to Jesus. He's called what? The son of David. He's the one also born in this nothing town of Bethlehem many years later. And Jesus the king. He will accomplish our redemption perfectly. And he will bring us into his kingdom. But here's what I want you to notice. That this Jesus, King Jesus, comes from a checkered ancestral lineage. With regard to his human nature, that is, right? And we see that so clearly in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. That's why I had Eddie read a portion of that. Who's listed there? I won't go through all the names, but... What we see in that same list is Judah. Judah, the father of Bedez by Tamar. There she's mentioned. And then Ruth is mentioned, right, as well. But then we have Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Yeah, that Rahab. If you know the biblical Old Testament stories, you know, Rahab simply didn't dress as a prostitute. She was a prostitute. 
So if there are no gaps you know, in the genealogy, Rahab then is the great-great-grandmother of David. And then you go on in that list, there's the mention of Uriah, which reminds you and me of King David committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah. And then you keep on going and you come to this king, one of the kings of Judah, Manasseh. Did you know Manasseh was the greatest of all the idolatrous kings of Judah? He encouraged people to worship the stars. He encouraged sorcery and wickedness and fortune-telling, child sacrifice, uh, building altars to other gods, placing the Asherah pole in the temple of God. He was a horrendous king. And yet, he forms part of Jesus' ancestry. And you go, how scandalous. Oh, how scandalous. We see that Jesus, in his human nature, descended from a long line of sinners. And later in his life, what do we see as we come to the New Testament? He surrounds himself with sinners. Why? Why? Why would the Lord Jesus be descended from such a soiled line, or as Ian Duguid says, be included in the procession of the great unwashed? Because this is how he, this is how the sinless, perfect Redeemer and King would save sinners and identify with them. He would identify and be the friend of tax collectors, of prostitutes, of liars and murderers and idolaters. This is how he would come into their lives, into our lives. He would come and rescue and redeem us by living the perfect life that none of these people could ever live, that you and I could never live. And then he would die at the cross and shed his blood to cover our sins of immorality and selfishness and self-righteousness and pride and anything else you want to mention. That's how this would happen. That's why he's part of this lineage. Who would have thought that Ruth, a Moabitess, a Moabitess, a pagan, at one time a worshiper of Chemosh, would be part of the people of God and would be part of this ancestral line of the king of kings? Who would have thought? How do you explain this except by Grace, except by the coming of the king who has brought a kingdom of grace and truth. See, my dear friends, I think there are going to be lots of people that you and I don't expect would ever be in the church, in the kingdom of God. People like, and I could just mention all kinds of people at Las Tierras, all of us, includes you and me, includes you and me. Who would have expected that you would be part of the kingdom of God? Ah, but grace, the grace of God. Let me tell you about Brittany. Uh, when she was 16 years old, she and a bunch of high school buddies uh, in Southern California, they crossed over, I believe it was Tijuana in Mexico, and they found themselves in a strip club. And uh, first they were observers, but it wasn't long before she wasn't just observing, she was performing. And she says, as she shares her testimony, that was the first time in her life that she felt affirmed. And some years later, some film producers from L.A. saw her perform and offered her a role in the adult film industry. She was doing that for six months when these same producers told her, hey, you're getting too fat, which is terrible, right? So she started using cocaine to try to lose weight. So it wasn't long before she was addicted. She was depressed, suicidal. That led her to abusing heroin and being addicted to heroin. And for three and a half years, this was her life. Her life of brokenness and scandal and immorality. She wanted out. How could she get out? She called her grandmother. 
And in an encounter with her grandmother, she found out that her grandfather uh, was going to church and she asked if she could go to church with him. And she did, and that day she remembers hearing the pastor say something like this. Maybe you're here this morning and you're searching for contentment. You're searching for love. You're searching for satisfaction, but you're not searching for it in the right place. I tell you here this morning that it's found in Jesus Christ. Those words drew her. They were drawing her. Um, She was hearing God speak to her. And although there was an initial attempt for her to follow Jesus she experienced a serious relapse. And for another three years plus, she went back to drug abuse and the film industry. But something changed. She started to read the Word of God. And as she's reading the Word of God, it's as if God's redeeming hand reached through the pages of Scripture and grasped her and drew her irresistibly to himself and filled her soul with himself so that she was satisfied and filled with him and not with the rest of that stuff that she had lived all those other years. You know, today, she and her husband lead a ministry where they talk about the grace of God and Jesus Christ helping people out of the porn industry. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you think that Jesus would blush to welcome Brittany in his church. Would he be embarrassed? Absolutely not. No, he wouldn't be. Jesus is not ashamed to have the likes of Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and Judah and David and Manasseh in his family tree. Do you think that he's going to keep you and me and the Britneys of this world out of his church? Well, his church, his church is a hospital for sinners. It's a shelter for people looking for the grace and the forgiveness in Christ the King. Of course, he's not going to reject you. So I ask you this morning, do you acknowledge your sin? Do you acknowledge your immorality? Do you acknowledge your need of a king to subdue your wayward heart? See, if you acknowledge this, then you will seek the king. You will seek him and you will lay hold of him. And I pray you will, that you will come to this king of grace who invites sinners, who is caring for sinners like you and for me. And if you are a Christian this morning, but you're struggling with the shame and the guilt of your sin. I want you this morning do come. You come with your guilt. You come with your shame. You come with your sorrow. You come to the king who's sitting on the throne of grace and receive the grace and the forgiveness that this king gives. It's yours. Why stay away from him? No. He is able. This king and his power and his authority and his sovereignty, he's able to weave all the complicated mess of your life and my life with his wise sovereignty in order to weave a beautiful tapestry in which you are healed, washed, forgiven, and made new, in which you have a chapter four in your life. You won't always be in chapter one. Chapter four is coming. No more tears, no more crying, no more pain, no more sin, no more sorrow. Because we'll see the king. Let's pray.